All right, good morning, everyone. It's good to see everybody again this morning. Hope you all had a, a good week. We're going to go ahead and pick up uh, where we left off in question 32 of the larger catechism. But before we do that, let me uh, open, open us up in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day, this day that you have provided us as a day of rest. We pray that you would be with us this morning as we uh, study your, this catechism that you have uh, provided for us. And uh, as we study it, we pray that we would draw closer to you, learn more about you and your word that you have preserved throughout the ages, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, last week we looked at um, how the grace of God is manifested in the second covenant, um, and specifically how he offers to sinners a mediator, right? And how life and salvation is provided um, through him. This morning, Lord willing, we're going to finish out the rest of the question. Okay, and so just by way of reminder, I'll read the rest of it. Um, And requiring faith as the condition to interest them in him, promiseth and giveth his Holy Spirit to all his elect to work in them that faith with all other saving graces and to enable them unto all holy obedience as the evidence of the truth of their faith and thankfulness to God and as the way which he hath appointed them to salvation. Okay, so the second main portion of our uh, answer this morning is that this covenant requires spirit-wrought faith and produces qualities of the Spirit. So let's unpack that first portion surrounding our faith. Okay? The the fact that faith is required. Okay? You ever hear people say that you just got to have faith? Right? Uh, I kind of find this this worldly catchphrase rather annoying. Uh, especially when it's used in, in a somewhat semi-spiritualized context, okay? Because the scene usually goes like this, right? A person is maybe sick, maybe they're hurt, okay? And two people are standing next to their, their, their bedside or they're right next to them, and maybe it's, maybe it's sad, right? And one person will look to the other and say, man, you know, you just, you just got to have faith. Um, and of course, there's no context given, right? There's no context given for this faith. At best, they mean that you've got to have hope that there'll be a good outcome. Um, in all likelihood, the motivation is to put your faith or trust in something other than God, right? You've just got to have faith that the doctors can fix this. You've just got to have faith that you can muscle through this. Right, you just got to have faith that fill in the blank. In all of these examples, the object of your faith or their faith is in something or someone other than God. <clears throat> Rather, our speech as believers should be something more like this, right? Have faith that God is good even in difficult times. In these difficult hours, have faith that God is sovereign, even when it seems like things are spinning out of control. Have faith that God's will is perfect. Ours is not. Notice how the object of the faith has changed. It's all about God, not some abstract reality. Okay, And that's the focus in the covenant of grace. Faith in Christ and his completed work. It is the condition that this covenant requires to partake of the benefits. You don't need to do 
works, be baptized, be circumcised, offer sacrifices, none of it, right? To be saved, all you must do is put faith, your faith, in Christ. Think of the conversation of the Philippian jailer, right? In, in Acts 6, uh, 16. Turn with me there if you have your Bibles. <clears throat> the, the jailer is about to kill himself, right? There's a big earthquake, and, and he thinks all of the prisoners have just escaped. And Paul and Silas, just before he's about to kill himself, they say, no, 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 no. Don't do that. Right? We're still here. Because they were some of the people that were imprisoned. Right? And the jailer is blown away by this. The fact that they're still there. And he knows they're Christians. And the jailer asks his famous question, right? What must I do to be saved? And what do Paul and Silas tell him? Sorry, boss, you don't have the special mark of the elect on you. No, right? They offer him the mediator between God and man, right? They share with him Christ and his gospel. Acts 16, verses 31 through 33. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. By the way, do you think there were any kids in that house? Sorry, I digress. We'll get to that in another question. But yes, it really is that simple. Okay, The new covenant was designed to be simple. It all comes down to faith. And for those of you out there wondering about repentance, technically faith precedes repentance in the order of salvation. Okay, Here's your order of salutis. I wrote it down so I wouldn't screw it up. But predestination, election, calling, regeneration, faith, repentance, justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification. Okay, And yes, it has to be in that order. Without faith, repentance is kind of a moot point. Because all sin is a sin against God. And if you're not forgiven by the Lord, the rest is irrelevant. But yes, the regenerate heart will hate their sin. And they will repent of it. Repentance is the other side of that coin. The two go hand in hand. The whole point here is that faith in Christ is the requirement to be made right with God. To be granted access into this wonderful covenant of grace. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Faith is not an option, it's a requirement. Just got to have faith, guys. Now, one last thing I wanted to point out is this phrase, the divines use to interest them in him. Okay, I don't want anyone to be confused by this. Remember, we have to read this in the context in which it was written. Right? Uh, the confession was drafted in, in 1646. This phrase doesn't mean that through our faith uh, we find Jesus curious, right, or, or that we want to learn more about him. That's not what they're saying. The word interest here means a, a legal claim or right. Okay? Uh, so, so when you read it with that understanding, right, requir- uh, requiring faith as a condition, as the legal claim or right. In Jesus, that's what that's what the divines are getting at here. Okay, remember, justification is a is a legal judicial action. 
That's what's going on there. You were guilty, but that guilt has been given to Christ at the cross, and you are now declared righteous. That's what happens in our justification. Okay? You're not just innocent of your sins where you're brought back to zero and the debt is canceled. No, the scales actually tip in your favor because you're given Christ's righteousness. Getting yourself to zero is not enough. You need to get to 100, and that's where Christ's righteousness comes in. For why was Christ raised? Right, for this very reason, for our justification. Romans 4.25 says he was delivered over to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Okay, very good. Now, tangential to this idea is the idea of faith, is the work of the the Holy Spirit. Let's turn our attention there. In our answer, we read that God promises and gives his Holy Spirit to all his elect. The Spirit is given with the purpose of working faith in them, and he extends many other saving graces. Okay, so let's take a look at these one at a time. God promises and gives his Holy Spirit. Jesus says in uh, John 14, beginning in verse 16, he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, we see a couple important things in this text. The promise that the Spirit will come. Number one, and that's important, the Spirit will come. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you the Spirit. That's a promise. You've got my word. Why is that important? Does this mean, by the way, that the Spirit wasn't active before in believers or in the world, and that he's just now coming at this time? No, that's not what this means. It's important because it means that the Spirit of God is going to inhabit believers in a completely new way and more powerful way than ever before. At the end of verse 17, we read that the Spirit will be in you, in believers. We'll talk more about that, what that looks like from a New Covenant perspective later when we get to that question, but keep that idea in your back pocket. That's very important. This passage also teaches us that the Spirit is specially given to the elect. Unlike the idea that, that everyone, right, as we talked about last week, everyone can receive the free offer of the gospel, right? Not everyone can receive the Holy Spirit. He is reserved strictly for God's people, for his elect, okay? And why? Well, our catechism tells us right that, right, to work faith in them. Among the many roles and responsibilities of the Holy Spirit Chief among them is to regenerate the heart of sinful man and work saving faith in them. Okay? And let's let's explore that a little bit more. The idea of of spirit-wrought faith. We've learned that faith is not something we as as fallen, polluted sinners, right, drum up on our own. Okay? We're spiritually dead. We can't do it. Right? Because of our sinful nature and our federal headship in Adam... The unregenerate man does not desire that which is spiritually good. Quite the opposite. We're only able to sin, right? Paul makes that pretty clear. 
Romans 3, 11 through 12. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks. For God, all have turned aside, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Right? We're very familiar with these, these passages. So then how do we get this faith? Well, if you have your Bibles, you can flip to Ephesians 2. We know this verse, these passages very well. Most of us, right? <clears throat> Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. All right, now, some of this may seem a bit pedestrian to some of you, but first of all, right, if salvation by grace through faith ever loses its flavor, repent. Okay, that is not something you should ever get tired of hearing. Okay, but... More importantly, what are we going to do when someone who professes to believe in Christ, and this is, this is a real question I'm asking, general question, what do you do when someone who professes to believe in Christ reads this passage and, and genuinely says, well, I don't see how faith is a gift here. I don't think it's referring to faith. I think it's referring to grace. Because I've actually had that conversation with somebody before. Here's why that's wrong. <clears throat> you should know, number one, you should know this person espoused in Arminian theology, okay? And in that worldview, we talked about the Ordo Salutis before, right? The order of salvation. In that worldview, faith precedes regeneration, okay? And that's wrong. You're regenerated, then you have faith. You don't have faith, and then you're regenerated, okay? <clears throat> This person is already operating under unorthodox presuppositions, okay? So if, if, if you think you have faith and then your heart is changed, right, that's, that's bad theology, okay? Go reread Romans 1 through 3. Paul makes it pretty clear, okay? You're misunderstanding the human condition at that point, okay? Um, Paul says earlier in Ephesians 2, right, we're dead, in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1, spiritually dead men can't generate faith, right? <clears throat> here's here's uh, number two, knowing, uh, knowing Greek will serve you well here, okay? The pronoun it in that passage in Ephesians 2, 8, is, okay, and I'm going to, I'm trying not to geek out on, on Greek here, but... <clears throat> The pronoun it is neuter. And I know some of you are learning Greek, so this will help you. <clears throat> the pronoun it is neuter, okay? While grace and faith are both feminine, okay? Therefore, the word this points to that whole process of salvation by grace through faith, okay? As being the gift of God. Using a neuter pronoun to encompass a complex idea like this is not, I mean, it, it's not, it, it's, it's quite common in Greek. Okay, you, you actually see it all the time. So the, it wouldn't just be referring to, to one of the feminine pronouns. It would, it's referring to the whole process of salvation by grace through faith. It's all a gift. Okay. <clears throat> And then, I mean, number three, this, this whole process in salvation is that man could not claim credit, right? We read it at the very end of the passage. 
It's all of God. It's all for God's glory. Otherwise, if there's any point in that process, we could boast, right? But the passage clearly says we can't. Man can't boast. Nowhere in Scripture will you find that man has contributed in any way to his salvation. Quite the opposite. Psalm 3, verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. It is the work of the Spirit to regenerate the heart of sinful man and give this great gift of faith. Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So the only way that you can proclaim Christ as God and Lord is if you are in the Spirit. And you don't get the Spirit unless you are one of God's people. He regenerates us. He gives us faith that we might believe unto salvation. Now, lastly, regarding the Spirit, the Catechism notes that he gives us, quote, other saving graces. Right? This is, of course, in reference to the fruits of the Spirit from Galatians 5. I'll read that uh, briefly. This is uh, Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, I don't, I don't really want to go into great detail regarding each one of these. I'll just mention a couple things. The, these, these gifts are not salvific, okay, in the sense that love, joy, peace, and the others, these things don't save you, okay? Rather, these are the fruits of genuine faith, okay? Um, <clears throat> these are things that being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you receive, okay? And as we mature and grow in our faith, these qualities should come more and more naturally, more pronounced in the believer, Okay. Another uh, helpful way to think of these is that in practicing these fruits of the Spirit, you are putting on righteousness. Okay, you ever, you ever heard the saying, um, the best defense is a good offense? Okay. Well, in a way, that's kind of what this is. Okay. The Spirit fights sin not merely in defense, but in attack, in offense. Okay. And that attack takes the form of producing in Christians godly character. Okay, all of which are modeled by Christ in the Gospels. All these qualities that we just read in Galatians five. All right, remember our goal as believers is not just to stop sinning. That's not what we're looking to do, but to replace that sin with righteous behavior. And if you're lacking in any of these, which I know we all are, pray for them. Pray for them. You know, I once knew somebody who prayed for the fruits of the Spirit every day for like 30 years. He was a really good guy. <laughs> you could do worse in your prayer life. Okay? Now, the catechism rounds out this answer by addressing how works fit into the covenant of grace. And it has some important things to say, so let's take a look at that next. Um, the divines mark three important points here. And the first is that our good works are spirit-enabled. Spirit-enabled. Specifically, it says that the Holy Spirit enables the elect unto all holy obedience. Now, this, this whole sentence is important, but this is the biggest point I want to drive home here. <clears throat> Any good work we do 
And any way we keep God's law, any way we please the Lord, is all because the Spirit empowers us to do so. Okay, Ezekiel 36, verse 26 says, And I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Okay, All the good work we accomplish that is pleasing to God and in accord with His commandments is because of Him. And He gets the glory as a result of it. Okay, and why? Because he is ultimately the one responsible. Right? And if we're honest, I think that's maybe sometimes a little hard for us to admit. Right? Pride gets in the way a little bit. Right? We want the pat on the back. We don't want anyone else to get the credit. Right? Look what I did. Right? But we're not self-made men. Right? It is because of the indwelling spirit we at last have the power to keep God's law and please him. Right? And that brings, that brings us to the second point. Right? If you noticed, <clears throat> I've been using the first person, we, our, us, right, to talk about the work of the Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit only works in the hearts of the elect. Right? The Holy Spirit does not indwell or empower the reprobate. Now, this may seem like a, a frivolous point, but I assure you, it's not. First of all, it reminds us of the great work God continues to perform in us. Okay, and gives us more reason to praise Him. But second of all, it, it helps us answer the question that a lot of people have about, you know, the sweet old lady that, that lives next door and does all these wonderful things, right? Is God going to send her to hell? I mean, she's the nicest person I've ever met. If she's not putting her faith in Christ, then those sweet good works that she's ultimately doing are for her glory, not God's. The Spirit is not working in her. And so, yes, if the Lord required her life of her right now, then yes, she would go to hell. Okay? And of course, of course it's sad. It's terrible. All the more reason to go share the gospel, right? All the more reason to go tell people of the glory of Christ. You know, again, every word in this catechism answer, every, every part of this is important, okay, in this section. And this last part is no different, okay? The Spirit enables the elect unto all, all, all holy obedience. Let me read our passage in Ezekiel again. And I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey some of my rules. No, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. No, the Spirit doesn't come and just help us to obey some of God's law. Okay, some of what God commands. All of His commandments. Okay, we need to be reminded of that today. Okay, we live in a world whose go-to response is, well, that's just the way I was made. No, 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 no. Okay, I hope I never hear any of you say that. Okay. You have been given the third person of the Godhead to not only fight your sin, but to obey all of God's commandments. Okay? And glorify God in doing so. To put on righteousness, like we've been talking about. Okay? Are some sins harder to fight than others? Yeah. Are some commandments harder to keep? 
Yes. Okay? But you have to believe that you are the temple of the living God and have everything you need to complete this task. Because you have God himself inside of you. Don't make excuses. Don't give up. And praise God along the way. Okay? Now, the answer goes on to provide the reason for this holy obedience. And it's, it's dual-purposed. Okay? <clears throat> now, of course, our keeping of the law does not save us. Okay? I've said this several times. Quite the opposite. Apart um, from Christ, our attempt to keep the law only leads to condemnation. Okay? But that does not mean our works serve no purpose or that they're unnecessary, okay? um, as evidenced by the meme on the back of your uh, notes there. I'm sorry, I just had to put that one on there. Normally, I wouldn't put something like that in your notes, but I thought, I thought this one was okay. It gave me a little chuckle. Um, if, if you know me at all, you know I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan. So when I saw this, I just had to share that one. Anyway, <clears throat> first... The Catechism says uh, our holy obedience is meant to be evidence of our faith. Okay, We know quite well, James 2.17 says that faith by itself, uh, if it does not have works, is dead. Right? There is no scenario where a person will have saving faith in Christ and then continue in the same sinful life and sinful acts that they once lived. Right? Where the law of God is, is cold and distant. Right? If I came in this morning and said, hey guys, guess what? I just got hit by a math truck. And I look like this. Stunning and handsome. Right? You'd say, no, you're a liar. Right? But if I said, hey guys, I just got hit by a Mack truck. Right? And I have, I have a cast and I'm ragged and bleeding. You tend to believe me. Right? It looks different. You look different. Your life should look different. Okay? <clears throat> in fact, Jesus makes this point, the same point, in Matthew 7. Turn with me there, uh, if you have your Bibles. We're going to read Matthew 7, um, verses 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits." So here, Jesus is comparing and contrasting, right, false prophets and believers or wolves and sheep, right, to diseased trees and healthy trees. And he's using this analogy, right, to say the difference between the two is blatantly obvious, right? He says you got two sets of people and both may look the same on the outside, but the way you tell them apart is how the tree bears its fruit, right? The healthy one bears good fruit, and the rotten, diseased tree will bear bad fruit. 
so too with believers and false prophets, right? Or unbelievers, okay? <clears throat> Even those, by the way, who will confess Christ but don't truly love God, okay? Underneath the trunk of a man, see what I did there, <clears throat> lies his heart. And if that heart has not been transformed by God, by the Spirit of God, it cannot bear good fruit. Look at verse 18 again. We've talked about this before. It's the difference between permission and ability, right? It's not that unbelievers don't have the permission to please God, but that they don't have the ability, okay? And according to verse 19, all these branches are good for is what? Firewood. They get cast into the fire. Now, the reverse is true for believers, right? For members of the covenant of grace. We cannot bear bad fruit. Now, does this mean that we can't sin? No, of course not. What it means is that the works are done, our works are done in the Spirit of God and in accordance with His Word. We produce good fruit. Okay? Because they are done out of faith in Christ. And by the way, the principle of our works being evidence of our faith has tremendous implications in other aspects of our lives. How about evangelism? If you think evangelism is just walking up to strangers and telling them the gospel, allow me to enlighten you, okay? Believe me when I tell you that when your unbelieving friends and neighbors are watching you like a hawk, they are, okay? If you profess Christ and then live like the rest of the world, then you're just another Christian hypocrite in their eyes. Evangelize the people in how you live. Let people know the love of God and the work of Christ in what you do and in how you do it. Okay? What about the third commandment? Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Wait, you mean that's more than just not using God's name in a swear? Now, I don't want to linger on this one too much here because we're going to address this more in detail when we actually get to the commandment. But as believers, as those who house the Holy Spirit, right, we carry God's name everywhere we go and in everything we do, every action we take. If you are Christian, you represent God. Do not smear God's good name. Okay, we could talk all day about the consequences of this idea, but let's move on to the second point regarding our works, okay? It demonstrates our thankfulness to God. Now, let me start off by saying what I hope is obvious. In our obedience, we do not keep God's law in some kind of feeble attempt to brag or show off to people, okay? In fact, Scripture is very clear uh, to do the opposite, Um, if you still have your Bibles open, I closed mine. Um, Flip over a chapter to Matthew 6. Looking at uh, verses 2 through 4. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, 
so that, you, so that you're giving maybe in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, uh, fun fact, hypocrites actually generally referred to Greek actors uh, who wore different masks to play multiple roles. Okay? Jesus criticizes the religious leaders for a particular form of hypocrisy, okay? doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. Okay, the two masks. And in this example, it's giving to the needy. The Pharisees would give simply to be praised by others. One commentary said this, really like this. The tragic irony was that they had received their reward of public and professional acclaim, but that was all the reward they would ever receive. And such fleeting human adulation precludes satisfaction of the deep longing of people's hearts to stand approved by their father who sees in secret. I really like that summary. Our works cannot be for public applause, for that is an idol you will serve forever. A hunger that can never be satisfied. Okay? But working to please God, to serve him. Well, Christian, that's what we're made for. Right? Our catechism says our holy obedience is designed to demonstrate our thankfulness to God. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commitments. John 14, 15. Right? Now, perhaps, perhaps to an unbeliever, that sounds a bit manipulative. Right? If you love me, well, then you'll keep my commandments. Right? I mean, my wife says that to me all the time. You know, if you truly love me, you've put the kids to bed. Right? <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. She doesn't say that. I did hear someone say once, though, that if you want to get good at apologetics, read the Bible like an unbeliever. Read the Bible like an unbeliever. I I venture to say most of us have read the Bible cover to cover multiple times in this room, so we know how the Bible should be understood and read. Read the Bible like an unbeliever. So when Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, is he manipulating people here? No. No. Those whose hearts have been changed by the Spirit and are in a saving relationship with Christ know that nothing can be further from the truth. Right? First of all, God is sovereign. He doesn't manipulate anyone. He doesn't need to. Okay? But more importantly, we keep God's word out of a love for all he's done for us, thankful that we are in a saving relationship with him. Right? When a sinner recognizes that he stands in judgment before a holy and just God. That's terrifying. To further realize that this same God grants you mercy, clemency from your sins by sacrificing his son, well, that's humbling. To finally learn that you are given righteousness and welcomed into his kingdom despite your wickedness, You're in awe. You dedicate your life in love and service to this God, to this King who has done everything for you to save you. A true love for God manifests itself in willing obedience. Let me say that again. A true love for God manifests itself in willing obedience. Now, while we're on the topic of the purpose of works, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, the, uh, mention this briefly, the 
other end of the spectrum is something most of you probably have at least heard of, uh, would be antinomianism. Okay? Uh, antinomianism is derived from the Greek words uh, anti-namos, meaning against law or against the law. It's, it reared its ugly head during the, the Protestant Reformation. The, the basic idea behind this ideology um, would be that because man is saved by grace through faith, um, we're not bound to keep the moral law. Okay, in other words, our actions are, are essentially irrelevant. Um, it's the idea that we don't need to keep the law because it's all of grace. Okay? Um, John, uh, Johann Agricola, uh, he was the forerunner for antinomianism, and he said this, If you sin, be happy. It should have no consequences. Okay? Hopefully it's obvious um, this is wrong. Okay, Paul says in Romans 6, 1 through 2, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How could we who died to sin still live in it? Sorry, I am losing my voice. <clears throat> Again, I don't want to dwell on this too much. If you need me to flesh this out for you a little bit more, just come, come snag me afterwards. But clearly the works of the elect in the covenant of grace are, uh, are very important. This is, of course not to undermine the work of Christ in any way. We'll get to that in later questions. Uh, but the divines round out this question by mentioning one last piece. Let's direct our attention there. Um, the fact that our works are, are essentially interwoven into our salvation. Okay, As the sovereign, God takes our works and delicately weaves them into our salvation. Now again, when I say works are interwoven into our salvation, I am in no way trying to say that we are saved by works, okay? Nor are the divines when they say our holy obedience is the way God has appointed them to salvation, okay? The whole point here is that it becomes our new way of life, okay? Our new way of life in our sanctification. <clears throat> As we are conformed into the image of God, our sin is put to death, and we are enabled more and more to live unto righteousness and do those good works. Put simply, this is the way salvation is supposed to look. Okay, a person repents, puts their faith in God, and then they start keeping his word. It's embedded into the order of salvation. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And who's the we in that verse? Well, it's the elect, right? It's believers. And believers have been created to do good works. Keeping God's law is doing good works. The Ten Commandments are really the love of God made practical. Okay? The love of God made practical. Paul says it beautifully um, in Titus 2. This is verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave him for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. And here's the end. Who are zealous for good works? Okay, now that is a fantastic passage. You could preach a whole sermon on that text, but what we need to recognize right now is that the salvation has been accomplished by Christ, okay? And part of that salvation is that he is purifying a people for himself, and that process is twofold. 
right? Redeeming us from lawlessness, removing the sin, right? But also to produce a people who are zealous for good works. That's a really good word. Zealous for good works. We're quick. We're enthusiastic. We're all these things when it comes to God's law. Okay? May we, according to Psalm 1, 2, delight in the law of the Lord and on his law meditate on it day and night. God's saving grace changes a person and it's indeed a, a delight to keep his law. Okay? I pray this is true in all of our lives. Does anybody have any questions before we close out this morning? Yeah, Robert, Scott. So going back to the order of the Mm-hmm. Are there some of these steps that happen simultaneously, or is it strictly for reference? Yes. No, they do happen simultaneously. Um, like, okay, so you're justified, right? You have faith. You're regenerated, right? All those things happen at the same moment. When the Spirit changes your heart, right, in that moment you have faith. You're, you're justified, right? You repent, right? All those things happen at the same time. But... There's also an element of it where it's progressive, where you're, right, we talked about how salvation has past, present, future, right? You're, be, you're saved, but you're also being saved. Um, repentance is an ongoing thing as well. So there's elements within the order of salvation that are, yes, they all happen at once, at one moment in time, right? You're justified. Um, but there are elements that are progressive as well. It's a good question. More questions? So earlier you read from the Old Testament, Ezekiel is the spirit of the Lord that gives us the capability uh, that puts in the, in the capability to repent, the capability of being obedient to God's law. So if he gives us that capability, Well, because we still struggle with sin, um, you know, um, any, any sin that we do commit is because of us. Um, we are still responsible for our sin. We still struggle with sin, this side of uh, glory, this side of our glorification. Um, the Spirit still, the Spirit, we are, we are given the Spirit of God to fight our sin, to fight the temptation of sin. Um, and so we do have that ability, but because of our indwelling and remaining sin, we don't always succeed. So, um, but that's why we have a community of believers as well to encourage such a person to repent, to come back from their sin, um, and to help them in their pilgrimage. Any more questions? Very good. Okay. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Father, thank you again for your word. We thank you that you have preserved it, that we may know you, that we may love you, 
and worship you as our God and our King. We thank you for the spirit that you have sent as a helper that indwells us as believers, that enables us to fight our sin, to love your law, and to keep it, and that we may know it as pure, holy, and good. We pray that you would be with us this morning as we come into your presence for worship as you have called us to do so as your people. We thank you for this Lord's Day. What a wonderful day it is that we may cease from our work, be refreshed, and call upon you in worship as our God. Please be with Pastor Miller. We lift him up to you as he brings your word to us in spirit and in truth. We pray that we would receive it as such. Pray all these things in Jesus' name.